You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, The Covenant Bond, three major steps are taken to make a covenant, a promise, an oath, and a sacrifice. Philip Edwards will examine how these apply to our relationship with God today. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome. It's good to have you with us again as we continue our study with covenants. Let's pray before we uh, open up the Bible and the scriptures and just examine what God wants to show us tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you because it delights your heart when we gather to study your word, to discover more about you. And we are dependent on your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Lord, we just uh, thank you because um, you've shown us so much and you want to reveal more of yourself to us, your great love for us. So help us to follow the study, help us to understand and reveal more truth to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the study we did last week, uh, if you have your notes, you'll have realised I didn't finish it. Um, Sometimes you write notes and then when you you speak, it goes a bit longer. Sometimes it's a bit shorter. So there is some flexibility with it. So I will finish off what I didn't do in week one last week before we start week two. And we were looking last week at the nature of covenants. And I want to look at this evening, before we go into week two, the characteristics uh, and the nature of the relationship that we have with God. If we live in covenant relationship with him, it's vital and important we know the characteristics of this relationship that we have. We have to understand it. You wouldn't enter into any legal covenant without knowing your responsibilities, what it is that you must do to fulfill your part of the agreement, the contract, the covenant. I want to look at five different characteristics uh, of covenant tonight, and then we'll go on to uh, week two lessons. Here's the first one then. A covenant is not an agreement between parties of equal standing and power, but it is between unequals, the initiative being taken by the stronger party who voluntarily binds himself to take on an obligation to the weaker party. It's obvious who is the stronger party and who is the weaker party. Obviously, God is the stronger party and we are the weaker one. So he enters into a covenant with us with the obligation of caring for us and looking after us. We are the weak ones. We need him. But we never thought about this covenant thing. This is what he did, what he chose to do to come into a covenant relationship with us. In all the covenants... The initiative always comes from God. It has to. The weaker party can't go to the stronger. It's the stronger who always comes to the weaker. Although, having said that, we learned last week that God was always looking for people in the earth whose hearts were towards him that he 
could open up a covenant relationship with them. We know that in the beginning he had a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden and then later he talks about a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel, the children of Israel through Moses and then with King David. None of them proposed the covenant in any case. And every time God approached one of these, he advanced the covenant, as it were. He moved it on to the next stage. Through the broken relationship in the Garden of Eden, over 4,000 years through the Old Testament, God is seeking to renew and to build the covenant that he once had. And then through into the New Testament and the 2,000 years that have followed on, he then continued to build a covenant until he's got it to the place that it's perfect, where we can enter into covenant with him. It says in Genesis 17 and 7, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will establish, he says, my covenant. This is God's covenant. Again in Jeremiah 31 and 31, he says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, he says it, I, I have chosen, I will make the covenant. The covenant that he was talking about there, the new covenant, is the New Testament. The New Testament is the covenant that we have with God now that was ratified through Jesus Christ. He refers to uh, Israel, a covenant with Israel. The Jews and the Gentiles together form what is called today in the New Testament Israel. We are the Israel of God, both Jews and Gentiles. The second characteristic is because the covenant is God's initiative and God's gift to man, it is founded on grace. It is maintained by grace and it operates solely on the basis of grace. That means the covenant relationship we have with God, number one, it's completely undeserved and unmerited. We never deserved it. We could never approach God and say, could we enter into a covenant? After all, we're not doing too bad. That could never happen. There's no virtue or worthiness on our part that gives any claim to God's attention. So looking at the earth and the complete mess it was in, God said, I want to enter into a covenant relationship. And we learned last week that is the highest form of relationship that exists in the universe. And God says, that's what I want with you, a covenant relationship with you. It came solely from God. It was all in the mind of God and we could never approach him. It's not only unmerited, it's actually an expression of the generosity and the forgiving love of God on the part of God who we have offended and sinned against. That's all we've ever done. Born in sin, born with something of a sin generator within us, 
we just sinned against him all the time. And God said, I want to enter into a covenant with you. The third part about this is that there's no need on God's part to have a relationship with us. We need relationship. We would be lost without loving relationships and support from others. God doesn't need relationship. Doesn't need anything, doesn't need us. He's complete within himself. So I'm building this picture that God, out of his infinite grace and mercy and love, he, he reaches out to us who are in a complete state and think nothing of him and care nothing of him. We just care for ourselves. And God is saying, I want a covenant relationship with you. It is the free and sovereign expression of the graciousness of his character. Whenever we study the Word of God and read the Word of God and examine the Word of God, we should always end up with the idea that both the Father and the Son and the Spirit are wonderful. They are wonderful. They are full of love and they are full of grace all the time towards us. Every sermon should just glorify God for who he is all the time. The third characteristic in a covenant, it is also the stronger party who sets out the conditions under which the covenant obligations will be fulfilled. In the covenants between God and man, God alone sets out the terms of the covenant. Well, of course, we couldn't even approach him. He has to be the one that initiates and sets out all the terms of the covenant. While a covenant is an agreement between the parties, the weaker party must agree to the terms of the stronger party. If not, he can't participate in that covenant. God says, these are the terms of the covenant. If you want to come into covenant relationship with me, these are the conditions that you must meet. So in the covenant between God and man, God offers his covenant to us, to all of us. You have all accepted the covenant. You might not have uh, thought about it in those terms. You heard about it in salvation and you heard about it in the terms that God loved you and sent Jesus to die for you. But we're looking at it in the terms of God establishing a covenant relationship with us. He said, these are the terms of the covenant. Well, you're going to find out what those terms are and to realise what you have agreed to, okay, because they're important. Because if you break the covenant, then the blessings of God don't flow into your life. That's why we need to know the terms of the covenant. We either accept it or we reject it. We don't have to enter into that covenant relationship. The terms are never up to debate or negotiation. When you read all of, and we'll study each of the covenant, God said, this is how it is. And you just accepted it, or you didn't. It says in Exodus 24 and 7, then he, that's Moses, when God entered into that covenant with Israel, then he, Moses, it says, he took the book of the covenant. Well, that is the book of the law, the Torah. He took the book of the law, the covenant, and he read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. <coughs> okay, uh, <laughs> the cough was part of it. Of course they didn't, did they? The, the intention was, 
well, God is, God is entering into a covenant where he will protect us and love us and guide us and uh, do everything for us. Of course we will obey. Whatever you want, God, we will do it. Well, we see that it was very difficult. No, more than that. It was impossible for them to fulfill their part of the covenant. One of the reasons... We need to hear this as New Testament Christians. One of the reasons that so many of us don't experience the blessings of the covenant is that we have considered the terms too demanding. That's it. Somehow we think we're in this relationship with this lovely God who would just do anything for us because he's our Heavenly Father and that's it. We, and somehow we've missed the whole point that, no, this relationship is a covenant relationship. I will do this, he says, but you have to do this. I will provide and look after and heal and care and do all these things, but you have to enter into this. Either people don't know or they just believe the demands of the covenant are too much for them. And they don't want to meet them. They don't even try some, don't even try to meet those demands. <laughs> We've either entered into something with God and sidestepped all the difficult things so we don't have to fulfil those things. We just scream grace all the time. It's grace. It's grace. I can dodge as much as I like because it's all a question of God's grace. We might partially obey. It might say, I want you to do this. And we say, well, I've done this much, God. Surely that's good enough. Well, it's not. You fulfill the covenant or you don't fulfill the covenant. Or we've tried offering to God an alternative to what he has suggested. If I do this, is this good enough? None of it's good enough. When you read the New Testament, any part of it, do you look for the, the conditions that are placed there for you to enjoy the blessing of God? This is something you must get in the habit of doing as you read the scriptures. Are there any conditions that apply? When Jesus is teaching the parables and he's promising things to us, do we see the conditions? Because the conditions are the covenant conditions. It's not written like legal terms of law in the Old Testament, but it's just as true the way that Jesus speaks in the New. Let me just give you an example of this. Let's take the story of what I think is the most important parable that we could read, which is the parable of the sower. I'm going to take the example from Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to start reading to you from verse 5. It's so familiar. You all know it really, really well. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, it was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rocks, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Another seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop of a hundred times more than what was sown. When he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What are they to hear? They're to be listening 
to the covenant that God is speaking through Jesus. That's what they need to be listening to. He is establishing or he's explaining the covenant to them. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they will not see, and though hearing they will not understand. We're in covenant relationship with him. We should understand what he's saying. Those outside of that relationship do not understand what is being said here. So he's saying to them, you, you, you love the Lord. You should be able to understand. I will reveal this to you. This is the meaning of the parable. So he goes on to explain. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocks are those who receive the word with joy. When they hear it, but they have no root, they believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on the way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, pleasures, and they do not matter. Now, here's the covenant part. We must take this on very seriously. But the seed on good soil, that's you. You have good hearts. You're noble. The seed on good soil stands for those with noble hearts who hear the word, retain it, and persevere, producing a crop. We see the conditions? We must hear the word, first condition. Second condition, you must retain the word. And the third condition is you must persevere under trial. And he says, that's the condition. If you don't do this, you won't bear fruit in your life. That's the end of it. If you're not listening to the word, retaining the word, keeping it there. Remember, the enemy's coming to take the word all the time. And if, if then you're not persevering under trial, there is no blessing. So that's a bit harsh. No, it's covenant, you see. He says, if you do your part, I will do mine. But if you don't listen, retain and persevere, you don't get anything. Now, God's not being harsh. He's a covenant God. He, he's not saying, oh, I'll bless this one and I won't bless that one. He's saying, I'll bless all if you do this. And even in the story, we see, see some somewhat apply themselves and God is very gracious and he blesses them with 30-fold, some 60-fold and some 100-fold. But the blessing of 100-fold is there for all of us. But we must keep the covenant conditions otherwise there is nothing. There is no blessing from God. So as you read through the New Testament, you say, what are the conditions? If, if God is promising me something, what must I do then for this thing to be in my life, for me to receive it from the Lord? What are the conditions that are set down? The covenant conditions. The fourth characteristic is because the covenant deals with God's relationship with man, 
It is all embracing. No part of man's life is outside of the covenant. Your health falls under the covenant of God. We read it in the Old Testament. He said, if you do this and do this and do this, none of the plagues or the diseases that fell on them will fall on you. It's the same for us. If we walk in the covenant promises of God, we will stay healthy. Now, you suggest this to people, they get very angry. As though God, through some whim, heals one and doesn't heal another, and, and we make excuses why God doesn't do it, and, and all this. No, it boils down to a covenant. And we can arm and ar and fuss all about it, why some are healed and some aren't healed. God says, I am the God who heals you. You walk before me in the terms of the covenant, and you will be healed. Now, that goes right back to the covenant we read about in Deuteronomy that he made with Moses. He hasn't changed that covenant. We can still apply those covenants because the covenant goes on from Old Testament to New Testament. The promises of God in the Old, many of them, not all, carry through into the New Testament. That's why when you listen to preachers who are preaching about healing, they're often pulling out these Old Testament ones. And of course, the argument might be in your head, oh, that's the Old Testament. The covenant is still a covenant that is the same that God has withheld. And we're going to see before we finish this course that the promises are there in the New Testament as well, just the same but we must walk in covenant. He's interested in our righteousness before him. He's interested in our holiness, in our wisdom, in our joy, in our work, our vocation, and in our relationships. God is interested in every aspect of our life, and he has written covenant promises in the New Testament that cover all of these areas of our life because he wants to bless us as his children he wants us to be an example to the world just as he did the children of Israel he wanted them to be an example to the goodness and the graciousness and the kindness and the power of God so in the church today he wants to be or hold us up as an example of people who can walk in covenant relationship with God and know health and blessing and prosperity and, and joy and peace in our lives. See, we settle for so much less than what the Word of God offers us. We settle for it. I understand we're in a battle. The enemy is, is chasing after us and there's all these other pressures from the Word. I understand that. But God's covenant with us is that we would be the blessed children of God. Here's an exercise. Just take a moment and list all the blessings that God has provided in your life. You might, you might get tired of writing them all down. As you think about all the different parts of your life and how God intervened and blessed and blessed and blessed. And then think of all the other times when you could have had more blessings if you had walked in a greater degree of the covenant of God. Revelation 21 and 3 says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. Coming into this relationship with God is far better than you could ever think or imagine. 
I was thinking of a house. If a house is left and no one lives in it, what happens to that house? It falls down, doesn't it? I mean, it just, it just falls down. Somehow, it just dilapidates. It just somehow, it doesn't just stand there like it was. It falls into ruin. But if people live in that house, it stays healthy and strong. It can go on for hundreds of years. It's because life is in that house. Oh, I know they're painting it and putting the heating on and all stuff like that. But it's like, it's, it's life that's in there. See, within you, you have life within you. The life of God dwells in you. And so God dwelling amongst us, he just desires that we walk with him in covenant and his life will just flow through every area and being in our life, in our relationships, in our work, in our health, in our everything. The presence of God within us, the dwelling place of God is here within us that we might glorify God with our lives. The relationship of covenant extends to every area of human life, the temporal and the eternal, the spiritual and the secular, the individual and the social, the private and the public, the personal and the institutional. I want to be your people, he says. I want, I want to be with you, to be your God, that you would be my people and you would manifest the glory of God in the earth. This is the covenant that we've been called into. And yet we live far below it. Just like Israel lived far below what God had designed for them, we too live far below, I believe, what he designed for us. The final and fifth characteristic I've got here is finally covenant has to provide not only the terms of the relationship, but also the dynamic to enable man to live in relationship with the holy God. God says, I want to live in covenant relationship with you, but there's two big problems in your life that just make it impossible for me to do this. One is a thing called sin, and the other is the thing called disobedience. And somehow, if we're going to walk in a covenant relationship, and this was continually through the Old Testament, that's what you read all the time. Uh, reading through the Old Testament can be very tiring sometimes, very exhausting. Uh, when you see the rebellion of man continually, continually, and of course then he breaks into the New Testament, and under the New Covenant, he deals with both of these things. He's got to deal with them if we're going to live in a covenant relationship. He's got to deal with our sin, and he's got to deal with our inability to obey him. I'm not too hard on Old Testament saints, but I am hard on New Testament ones. We don't have to live like Old Testament saints. I think sometimes Old Testament saints live better lives than New Testament saints. That should never be. Because the blood of Jesus has dealt with the sin problem and the Spirit of God entering into us has dealt with the rebellion problem. We can now obey the living God. We'll see more of this when we look at the new covenant. We have to wait a few weeks for that. I'm sorry about that. 
Okay, we can start. If you've got your notes, we're going to go into lesson two now. We've caught up with where we are. I said last week that the, the covenant relationship is the most serious relationship of all relationships that we can enter into. We looked at uh, the different levels of relationship. We said we could have acquaintances, friends, close friends, blood relatives, but above all of those, we have this covenant relationship with the living God, the highest relationship of all. There are three major steps involved in making a covenant relationship. We have a promise, we have an oath, and a sacrifice. We're going to examine these now. The promise, first of all, it is the commitment that one makes to a covenant. People today don't take promises very seriously. People just break them. They, they promise to meet us and they don't even bother turning up. They promise one thing and they just don't do it. Maybe this is the reason why we, we don't trust God's promises. Because we see no example. We might even be very poor ourselves. I hope if we've been journeying with the Lord some years, that if we say something, we do it. Even at the cost of our own expense. Having committed ourselves to do it, we will do it. I mean, if we're stopped or we're ill, that's not, but if it's within our power to do it, we must do it. What is a promise? It is an undertaking to do or to give something in the future. Or it is an undertaking not to do or give something in the future. That's it. Our word becomes our bond. We've said it, it's got to happen. That's the promise. See, because we're not good at it, when we read about the promises of God, we think God can opt out as well. God can change his mind. God can say, oh, I just said that, I didn't really mean it. Because we're so wishy-washy in the whole business. A a promise is not just um, a proposal. It's not just, this is my intention. It is a committed thing that we've said it. If, if, if you haven't thought seriously about this, I think you, you must. Rather than say something, don't say it. Um, I'll be there. And in your head you're thinking, no, I won't. I'll just tell her before. I'll just think of an excuse to get out of this. But let's just keep it all nice for now. That's awful. Because our word means nothing. A promise is a serious and earnest commitment as to how I'm going to act in the future. This is it. If I make an appointment with you and I don't want to come, I must ask you to release me. I must contact you and say, please, will you release me from this commitment? And then I'm free not to come. But if I do that, just say no to me. Okay? Make me come. Because I promised, you see. I promised. It's not good enough to say, 
I'm sorry, I just couldn't make it. <laughs> that's not good enough. That's, that's terrible. A commitment is to be taken and relied upon as an assurance that I will in fact act in a way that I have declared. I promise. That's it. I will do it. You can take my word. I will be there. It's a duty or an obligation to place upon myself to fulfil my pledge word when the time comes, no matter how costly or inconvenient it may be to do so. In other words, I acknowledge that I have limited my freedom of action in that particular situation because I consider myself duty-bound to act or do exactly as I have said I would. Remember, there was a stage with the selling of property where everyone was gazumping. That was a disgraceful thing. You had met someone, or perhaps you hadn't, and done it through an agent and said, I will sell you my property for X. And then someone else comes in the back door and says, oh, we'll give you £5,000 more. And you say, oh, yeah, I'll take this. Disgraceful. Disgraceful. We've said it. It's the end of it even if we're losing by thousands of pounds because the transaction can sometimes drag on and you see the price going up and going up and going up. But you've given your word, that's all, that's final. Do you think God is going to honour you if you allow that to happen? I don't think for one minute. God is watching over us. It's all to do with the covenant, the way we live our lives. God takes his promises very seriously. It's yes and amen. It's finished. When he has said something to you, that's it. You can stake your life upon it because it will happen. It, nothing, nothing can change that. When God makes a promise, he has committed himself to that course of action and we are meant to take his promise as a pledge or a guarantee that he will do exactly what he said he will do. If I take the word of God and I retain the word of God and I, I hold on to it through difficult circumstances, I will receive at least 30 or 60 or 100-fold blessing in my life. Why? How do I know that? Because God has said it in his word. As we lay hold of the promises of God and stand firm on them and stand in this covenant relationship and fulfil our part of the covenant, the blessings will come into our lives. If we look after the poor and the needy that are around us, he said, health will come to your home, remember? He said, blessings will come upon you. So we take the promises that God reveals to us and we fulfil them and we hold them up to him. We don't have to because he's watching all the time and he says, I can see it, don't worry. If I've said there is blessing because you've done it, blessing will come to your life. But we have to sometimes hang on for a while. We have to persevere through the difficult times. When God makes a promise, he limits his sovereignty. God can do anything. Well, up to a point where he promises he's going to do something for you, then he can do nothing else but that thing. So his mouth, his words limit him to what he has promised to do. It limits his freedom of actions and it limits yours once you've promised 
you're not free to do what you want. Because he has thereby bound himself in advance as to what he will do in certain situations and he cannot do otherwise. It says in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. A thousand generations. We haven't even been around a hundred generations yet. And his word is eternal. It just travels through the ages and it cannot be broken or deviated at all. Psalm 89, 33 and 34. I will not take my love from him. Of course, he's speaking of David. Nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter what my lips have uttered. We will stand before him in heaven. He's promised it. It will happen. There's no issue or, or debate about it. We have an eternal destiny with the living God in a place that he is providing for us. A place of abundant joy and life and vitality because the God of covenants has entered into an eternal covenant with us. And all the other covenant promises that we read in here, he's bound by them as well. Let's take a little break there and uh, we'll come back uh, after some refreshments. Thank you. Okay, so we've said there are three parts to this covenant relationship. There is the promise, the oath, and the sacrifice. The promise we've dealt with, so let's move on to these uh, next two parts now. The oath. The oath is the confirmation of the covenant. When a promise is confirmed by an oath, it's given even greater seriousness. It's more than simply God promising. God swears something on oath. In fact, he swears it by himself. The person making an oath, if we do it, we're calling on God to be our witness. We might say, I swear. We've just cut the sentence short. I swear before God that what I say I will do, I will do. That's serious because we're invoking God in the whole thing. He is holding himself to the statement that he's making in front of God. He is also asking God to hold him to account that if he doesn't do what he says, then God will deal with that person. You see, the words that come out of our mouth, we know there's life and death in the power of the tongue. We should be more careful. Uh, I heard someone using a word the other day, and I thought that's completely the wrong word to use. If, that, if what you said gets out, it's going to cause all sorts of problems. We need to pick our words carefully. We need probably to say less rather than more. Okay, and just, just be careful with what we do say. Children say, don't they, I swear, cross my heart and 
Hope to die. I mean, really? Good job God doesn't always take us to our word, but we can understand the seriousness of where that sort of statement comes from. It had meaning once, you see. I promise. Before God, therefore, it will come to pass. Also, the person is acknowledging that his honour and his credibility are at stake when he swears something on oath. His reputation or his good name are worthy and principled behaviour. is more dependent than keeping his word. I will do this. I just think in business, so often that doesn't happen. And yet, if someone makes you a promise in business and they don't follow it through, their reputation is shot to pieces, isn't it, really? You're thinking, why would, I go, why would I go back there? He said he would do something and he never did it. He promised to do something. Never. So our reputation still stands on the things that we say we would do. An oath was considered so serious that if it was taken, it put the person's promise beyond question and his word beyond the possibility of doubt. It was settled to say something on oath. We know that even today, if, um, if you go to court and you tell lies, it's perjury. You go to prison for a long period of time, depending on the seriousness of what happened to the person that you were sent to prison and the seriousness of the case. Hebrews 6 and 6 says, Men swear by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to the argument. I swear it on oath, it's, it's done. God's covenants are always based on his promise, confirmed by an oath. That's reassuring, isn't it? He cannot go back on his word. We know he swears by himself, by his word and by his character. He says, I swear by two immovable things, my word and my character, that this will happen. In Genesis 50 and 24, this is what Joseph was saying to his brothers uh, on his deathbed. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised. Remember, he'd led them all into Egypt and he's promising them these hundreds of years later, or because God had promised it, God would bring them out. Take you up out of this land to a land he promised. He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And remember when 600 years before the Exodus, God appeared to Abraham and said, see this land, your ancestors will possess the whole of this land. And of course it was 600 years later, they'd been in captivity and all those things and, and then Moses leads them out and they enter into the promised land. God swore it on oath, it will come to pass. Sometimes we have to wait a little while, hopefully not 600 years, but he was dealing with a nation and the people and everything like that. But what God promises to you, he will bring it to pass. The third part then is this thing that we call the sacrifice. It is the sealing of the covenant. Remember when uh, children uh, used to play and they used to make a pact with one another. They used to cut themselves and put their... Did you ever remember what that nonsense children used to do that? Well, uh, although it was nonsense, it was rooted in something real, which is the cutting 
of the covenant. It is, it is the third part of the, the, the promise, that the covenant promise. It's solemn, it's, it's very striking. A covenant is sealed with blood. That's how serious it is. Not just a promise, not just said on oath, but now sealed with blood. Sacrifice meant the shedding of blood. There's two important issues involved in sacrifice. The first is atonement, and the second is separation. To be made one, separable only by death. Do you remember in the marriage covenant what used to be said? We shall be one until death us do part. See, it's the same thing. This coming together, joining together, being one, and then impossible to separate or part us. Let's look at then this atonement. For God to enter into a covenant relationship with fallen mankind is impossible. A holy God cannot enter into a covenant with fallen sinful man. It just, he can't do that. He's got to deal with man's sin condition. The problem of sin in the human heart has to be dealt with. And it's not simply the sins that we commit but there is something in us called sin. When Adam, when Adam sinned, something came into humanity that made him a sinner. You're not, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Can you say that again? Okay. You're, you're not, I can't declare you a sinner because you commit sins. In other words, if you never committed a sin, you couldn't be called a sinner. That's not true. You were born in sin. You were born a sinner. Something in you, it's like a generator of sin existed in you. It was part of you. And because you were a sinner, you sinned. We got there, Larry? Sorry. We're talking about original sin. And so, yeah, yeah, so, so that's in us. So everyone that was born after Adam had this thing in them called sin. It, it, and it made, it made people sin. That's what God had to deal with. Yes, when he went to the cross, his blood washed away your sins. But he had to do something with you. The, the generator of sin that was in you, he had to deal with that thing that kept producing and making you sin all the time. It is that which separates us from God. It's not just the sins we commit. The sins we commit are the result of having this thing of sin within us. So Jesus dealt with this thing of sin within us. So we didn't have to sin again. Before you came to Christ, you had to sin. You had to sin. This thing within you compelled you to sin. It was the natural thing for you to do. Now we've come to Christ, that's gone. But we still sin. But we choose now. And we choose to do it. Before you were a slave to sin, 
but now you're not a slave to sin, but you can still choose because the fallen nature is still resident within us. God had to do, deal with this thing called this sin thing that was in us. The covenant that God offers us has to include a complete removal of this thing that causes sin all the time. Isn't it John who says, if we want to keep on sinning, we're not born of God. I don't want to sin. I'm sure you don't want to sin. That thing in you that didn't care less if you sinned or not and you had no appreciation of what sin was anyway, you just did what you wanted to do, that thing was promoting you to sin. That's gone. And now you're a slave unto righteousness. Christ became sin that we could become the righteousness of God. So what was ever in Jesus motivating the righteousness in Jesus has now come into us and promotes us to do righteousness. We sometimes fall short of doing that. But we have now a generator of righteousness within. We want to do the right thing. Christ, by going to the cross, exchanged the sin for the righteousness of Christ within us. This sin that was in us can only be dealt with by atonement. The word means to be at one again, at one meant with God. And through the blood of Christ, you have been atoned for. You have changed on the inside. You are now the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You, if you were left to choose, you would never sin again. You want to pursue righteousness and walk in righteousness. Atonement is the something that robs sin of its power to separate us from God. That sin in us separated us from God. The atoning blood of Christ has robbed that thing of its power. It no longer generates sin within us. It has no power to do that. And Christ's righteousness has come into us. And so we're generated now to be righteous, to do the right thing, to walk with him. It is the blood of Jesus that has the power within it to take the power out of the sin that was in our lives. Hebrews 9 and 22. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Not just God saying, I have forgiven you because of the shed blood, but I have dealt with something within you that promotes sin in your life. The covenant God offers us deals with our sin problem. It's once and for all. You're saying, Philip, if this is true, I never have to sin again. Amen. You don't. To say, I have, I have no choice then, I, just, I, I have to at times, I have to slip and I have to fall and I always will, is to deny the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to bring about this transformation on the inside. 
We sin for a whole variety of reasons. We're foolish. We don't know the truth. Uh, we're tired. We're exhausted. We allow the enemy to get the advantage of us. We allow the world to pressure us. We allow our nature to take control, this fallen nature within us, to dominate our lives again. We don't have to. And through growing up in Christ and through discipling ourselves by the power of the Spirit and the grace of God, we can walk free of sin. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Maybe we'll never get there, but we press on because we know we don't have to do it anymore because the generator of sin inside has been dealt with. The blood of Jesus has the power not only to cover sin, as in the case of the Old Testament sacrifices, it could never deal with the sin on the inside. The blood of animals only covered it all the time, atoned for it, covered it in that sense. But through the blood of Christ, that thing has been removed from our life. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin. Christ never sinned, ever but he became sin. He took upon himself what we had upon himself, that thing that forced us to do it. To be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The minute you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God declared you righteous in his sight. He said, you are righteous. You can't make yourself more righteous. It's not possible because he has made you righteous. What you do now is you learn to discipline your life. Righteousness is a gift from God. Okay? We learn to discipline our lives by walking in obedience to him. Because of the blood, God says, I declared you righteous. Your righteousness is a gift from me, never to be removed from your life. Now and for all time, you are at one with me. See, you will sin and I will sin as we pursue this life of discipline, learning and practicing and putting into practice the things of God. But if I was to die tonight, if I was not righteous, I would be lost. So I must be righteous in his sight. Any point where I, I go out of this life, my righteousness is established. Now, if I sin... I can't enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. I understand that. By sinning continually and choosing to sin, which actually goes against my very nature now to choose to do it, it puts me outside of kingdom's blessings. And so, so I just follow the leading within me and I'll never sin. And I'll always walk in righteousness. People get really upset about this. 
but what you're saying, if, it's, if what I'm saying is not true, then the gospel isn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough to convert the human soul, to bring him into a place, to, to cause him to walk in the way that God would want us to walk, which was in a sinless way. The blood of Jesus is powerful. It can do that. So we live in this paradox, accepting the fact that we should walk free of sin and knowing that we won't. We live with these things all of the time. The second issue that he deals with here, with the blood sacrifice, is the whole thing of separation. First atonement, cleansing us of that thing that drives us to sin. The second is separation. When people enter into a covenant, the sacrificial ritual, we call it the cutting of the covenant. The sacrifice was cut usually in two pieces and the parties to the covenant, they walked between the pieces. Do you remember reading this in scripture? Remember God's covenant with Abraham. We read this in Genesis 15, 9 and 10 and 17 and 18. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in half and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch, I believe that these represented God, appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. We see that the animals are split and opened up and then a deep sleep comes on him and he walks between the pieces but he sees this pot with a fire and that walks between the pieces as well. So both he and God walked between the pieces of the animals that were split in half. God was cutting a covenant with him. He had made a promise, he had sworn it on oath, and now he was cutting a covenant. It symbolised that the parties of the covenant acknowledged their death. If they were to break the covenant, they would die like the animals died. They had entered covenant by death. And the sacrifice, it represented their death. So it had two parts. One, if they broke the covenant, they would die. But also, it represented their death. Let me read this to you as a statement. That death, their death, means final and irrevocable separation from their previous life. When Abraham entered into a covenant with God, all other relationships meant nothing. When we enter into a marriage relationship, whatever relationships have gone on, 
mean nothing. Remember I said even your blood family relationships, it's not you're abandoning them, but now you're not answerable to them. You have only eyes for this one person that you are in covenant relationship with. Everything else is, in a sense, is dead. A father will leave, leave, uh, sorry, a husband will leave his mother and his father and be, and be joined to this one. So Abraham, when God came and cut the cough, he was saying, everything else is dead. It's just me and you, God. We're in this together. We enter into a promises with one another that, that cannot be broken. They have given up their rights to live any longer for themselves. They acknowledge that they have died to those rights and henceforth they live for, and if need be, will they will die for the other part of the covenant. Whatever the covenant partner needs, they will supply. Whatever the partner or covenant partner asks for, they will give freely. We have to stop and think of this covenant relationship with God. He said, I am so committed to you. If you walk with me, whatever you ask me for, I will give it to you. Whatever it is, obviously it has to be a righteous ask. Isn't that what Jesus said in, in John? He said, listen, if you obey me, I'll give you anything you ask for. Just go to the Father and ask him for it. It's yours. It's yours. It's not, oh, you know, let's juggle with this verse and make it fit uh, the way it fits us. No, it is what it is. But we must walk in this relationship with God that nothing else matters except this. Nothing in my life, my life doesn't matter. It's the covenant relationship. In Genesis 18, remember when God comes to Abraham, his friend, remember? And he says, I'm just gonna go and talk to my friend because my plan is I'm gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What's he bothering to talk to Abraham for? Because he's in a covenant relationship with him. He can't do everything he wants to do anymore because God has bound himself. Although God is sovereign, he's limited his sovereignty because he's entered into a covenant relationship. So he says, I'm going to destroy this city. Let me talk to my friend. He's setting him up. He's setting Abraham up. So he says to him, Abraham, my plan is to destroy Sodom. And of course, in the back of Abraham's head, I don't know if this is true, I don't think he's thinking of saving the people of Sodom for one minute. I think he's got one thought in his head, and that is his nephew, who possibly could have been his adopted son by then, is living in Sodom. So he says, oh, what if there are 50, 45, 40? 30, 35, 20, 50, 10 righteous. Why did he stop? Why did he stop? Because God said, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. He could have gone all the way to zero. He could have talked out of destroying Sodom. Why? Because God was in a covenant relationship with him. Whatever, whatever Abraham asked for, God was duty-bound, duty-bound to give it to him. He could not have. He was in covenant relationship. 
God could have done things without talking to him, but having said, I will engage my friend and ask him about it, whatever my friend says, I will do it. That's the covenant relationship. Whatever you ask for in prayer, my Father will give it to you. Why? Because you walk in covenant. The condition, what was the condition? You obey my commands. It's always a condition, you see. That's the covenant relationship we have in the New Testament. It's all conditional. You say, I don't know what the conditions are, that's why we've got the Bible. We have to read them and find out what the conditions are, fulfill the conditions, and we'll know the blessing of God in our lives. He's promised to do that. God said yes. Yes. Yes, every time to him. He couldn't say no to him. Every promise is yes and amen. Yes. And amen, because it's a promise of God. But we have to fulfill the conditions of it. God never said no to him. God could not refuse Abraham. But then God comes back, doesn't he, in chapter 22. And he says, I'm going to have a little word with my friend, just to see if he understands covenant. He said, I've got a request of you now. He said, what is it? He said, your son, your only son, take him to the top of that mountain and kill him for me. And do you know what it says? It says the very next day, he packed off and went. He didn't wait. It was yes, you see. Whatever claim God asked him for, it was yes, it was yes. Why? Because he understood covenant. He understood it. Do you? We must understand it to the same extent that Abraham understood it. We must understand it to walk in the liberty and the freedom and to walk as a friend of God. It will cost us everything. We need to walk between the animals and say, my life is no longer my own. You can do what you like with me, God. I'm yours. But listen, you're mine. <laughs> he wrote the covenant. It's not arrogant. He wrote it, and so we can enter into it. And he says, these are the conditions. I'll call you my friend, but what I ask you to do, you must do it. But I'll tell you what you ask me to do, I will do it as well, because I'm a covenant God. This, this subject is important, that we understand it, that we know it. And we start to put it into practice. Hebrews 11, 7, 17 to 19. It tells us that Abraham had already resolved this situation in his head. He believed that he would have to sacrifice Isaac without a shadow of a doubt he believed it. He had no reason to think that God would ever take that command back. But he knew also that God promised him that from him would be many children. He believed, it says in Hebrews, that if he had killed him, and remember what he took with him, fire, and what was the fire for? Only to cremate the body, nothing else. He was going to burn his son until there was nothing left but ashes. But he believed that God would raise him from the dead because he had made a promise 
that he would have a son who would be the son of promise given to him by Sarah. Oh, isn't the word of God wonderful? Isn't God wonderful? He knew somehow God would move over the ashes and he would be born again from the ashes. We need to be people who know the covenant that God has written to us. We need to read our New Testament so we understand the conditions. We need to walk in the conditions and not live this sort of funny, hoping, not knowing Christian life that maybe God will be nice to me today and maybe he won't and let's just pray and see what happens and it's not wishy-washy. When you bother to sit down and write a covenant of relationship, there's nothing wishy-washy in it. You know the terms of it. That's why he wrote it down in terms. He didn't want a wishy-washy relationship with us. One day God might feel good towards you and the other day he might not. It's not written like that at all, none of it. It is that we would walk in the covenant promises of God. There are curses attached to the covenant. You don't want to know this, do you? Not only blessings, but there are curses. The covenant has two sides to it. And we read in Deuteronomy very clear. It says, if you do this, I will bless you. And there's about 15 verses of blessing. And then he says, but if you don't, these are the curses. And there's about three chapters of curses. The blessings are simple. I'll bless you, I'll bless you, I'll bless you. But if you don't, if you don't walk in the way that I've established in the covenant, you will know the curses that come upon your life. <laughs> that little example that we looked at, see, you can have 30, 60, 100 fold, or nothing. Nothing. That's a curse. To have nothing. In fact, when we don't fulfill the covenant of God and we walk with God, what we do, we expose ourselves to the enemy. When we walk in disobedience, we give the enemy license to break into our lives and to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus said he would. We must walk in the covenant promises of God. The sacrifice has the awesome significance that symbolically the parties call down upon themselves the curse of dismembership, dismemberment, if they break the covenant, they walk through the animals and they say, if we break this, what happened to these animals will happen to us. We will be destroyed. We will be destroyed. We acknowledge this. We walk through this together. We commit to this. When God cut the covenant with Abraham and he passed the pieces of the sacrifice he said, in effect, if I break this covenant I'm making with you today, Abraham, I will cease to be God. <laughs> you just made the most impossible statement ever, Philip. It's impossible because he couldn't break it. But that's what he was saying. He was saying, if you die 
I die. This is why I'm walking through this as well. I'm committing myself in the same way I'm expecting you to. Jeremiah 34 and 18 and 19 says, The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between the pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Jesus said, if you do not forgive, which is a covenant promise, if you do not forgive, I will hand you over to the tormentors. And we wonder, when we walk in unforgiveness, why the enemy is playing such ravage in our lives. It's part of the covenant. We need to almost look into the New Testament and say, what are all the covenant promises that I have been ignorant of, that I need to know? Well, as we read the Bible, the scriptures, the New Testament, bear in mind, what are the conditions? Because there's always conditions attached. If you do this, I will do that. And if you don't do this, you're breaking the covenant and the devil has free access into your life. We know that if we don't forgive people, we invite the devil to come and torment us. Jesus said, I, I will hand you, or my father will hand you over to the tormentors. Couldn't be more obvious. Serious business. But we won't focus on the dark side, will we? We'll focus on the good side. We'll focus on all the promises that he's made us, which are yea and amen in Christ. God bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for another lesson in the Covenants Part 1 module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by going onto our website and leaving us a secure online donation. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.